Amen. Let's bow and pray once more as we come to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we ask for your help this morning. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would humble us to receive your truth. We pray you take seeds of your Word and plant them deep within us and bring fruit for your glory. Lord, I pray you'd help me to faithfully preach your Word, or that your Son Jesus would be exalted as we sit and listen to your Word, that our eyes would be drawn to Christ, that we would marvel in Him and who He is and what He's done for us and how much you've loved your people through your Son Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen. Well, if God granted you one request, what would you ask for? One desire for yourself that He would give you, what would it be? Maybe for health, it's a good request. To be free of any sickness or disease, to have physical strength, it's a wonderful request to pray for. Maybe financial security, money, financial security for the future. Maybe you'd pray about relationships, for a happy marriage, to get married, to have harmony in your family, to have friendships that are close and love you. Maybe that's something that you would ask God for if He would give you anything. Well, this isn't a made-up scenario. It's actually something we see in the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 3 in the Old Testament, we read that King Solomon faced this very situation, that God came and invited him to ask for anything that he desired. And of all the things that King Solomon could have asked for, riches, for a a broader kingdom, for victory over his enemies, for a long life, all the things that he could ask for, you know what he asked for? Wisdom. That was his one request. What was greater than, than silver and gold in his life, what he desired more, what he longed for, what he asked God to give him was wisdom. And this request, it pleased God. So much so that the Lord said in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. His one request, the one request that he needed, the one request that pleased God was to ask God for wisdom from his throne. He knew that he needed that more than he needed anything else. And so it is for you and me. What we need is God's wisdom. And by God's grace, he's given us his wisdom in the pages of the Bible. In the book of Proverbs, we get to read about this very wisdom that Solomon asked for and receive from God. Turn with me if you haven't already done so. Proverbs chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Proverbs chapter 3. If you want to take that pew Bible right in front of you, you can take that pew Bible and turn to page 528. Page 528 in the pew Bible. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. This is a summer series we're giving our attention to. And uh, so two weeks ago we were in Proverbs 2. We're in Proverbs 3 today and plan to finish off this chapter Lord willing, next Sunday. Let me read for all, from all of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, as we begin our time. My son, do not forget my teaching, 
but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life, peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. These are some of the most familiar words in the book of Proverbs, particularly verses 5 and 6 there. And as we look through all of this lesson this morning, I want us to consider this main idea. If you're taking notes, you can write down this main idea. Wisdom is found in a heart that trusts in the Lord. Wisdom is found in a heart that trusts in the Lord. Well, in the beginning of the book of Proverbs, we find ten speeches. And these ten speeches, they're from a father to a son. So you can see there in chapter 3, verse 1, it begins with the words, my son. And the father here is King Solomon, and he's writing to his son, the crown prince. He's taking wisdom he received from God, and he's passing it on to his son. And these ten speeches, they call for his son to embrace wisdom and to cultivate the fear of the Lord. So this is the third speech in the book of Proverbs. Two weeks ago, Pastor Tim led us through the second speech in Proverbs chapter 2, and then back in April, Jonathan Morgan kicked us off in Proverbs 1 with the first speech from father to son. So we get to take a look at these ten speeches. That's actually going to be our plan is to go through all ten of these speeches. That's how we're going to approach the book of Proverbs. So you get an opportunity to glean from the wisdom recorded in the pages of the Bible that God gave to Solomon that he passed on to his son that the king of Israel would rule in wisdom. Now, Proverbs are meant to make us wise. Biblical Proverbs, God's wisdom imparted to us. And the definition of wisdom that we've been using in this series is this. Wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. Wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. And this morning, in Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to consider what a heart of wisdom looks like. We're going to break that into three parts this morning. The first part, in verses 1 through 4, a heart that remembers the Lord. Here's what a heart of wisdom looks like. First, in verses 1 through 4, a heart that remembers the Lord. Again, this third speech begins in verse 1 as the father, King Solomon, writes there in verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Well, whose teaching and, and whose commandments is he referring to? Well, he's talking about God's commands. 
He's passing on the word of God to his son. Now, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 shows us what it looks like to live in a faithful covenant relationship with God. Now, in the covenant relationship that Israel had with God, God sent his word, truth came from him in heaven, down to Moses on Mount Sinai, receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, written on tablets of stone. Those Ten Commandments then given to Israel, to the parents, who were then to pass that on to their children, to the next generation, that they would all know God, that they all would remember his word. So what we read here in Proverbs 3, it sounds a lot like what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can listen and hear some of the same themes that I just read in Proverbs 3 here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where the Lord commanded his people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And here in this proverb, Solomon, what he was doing, he was doing what God instructed his people to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Pass the word of God on to your children. His appeals to his son was grounded in the word of God. And that's what spiritual leadership should look like in our lives. Both our ministry here in the local church and your ministry to your family should be grounded in the word of God. We're passing on God's word. That's what discipling relationships should be grounded in in this local church. It's what parenting is grounded in. We're teaching our kids the Word of God, God and His authority, God and His commands, and and the need to obey and to submit to His Word. You see, true wisdom comes from knowing God, what He's done in Christ, what He's said in His Word. And the first concern in this speech from father to son is to remember God's Word. The, The appeal begins, pay close attention to God's commands. Don't forget. What does forgetting look like? Well, it could be just being less concerned with God's Word. Again, leaning more on your own understanding, what what seems right in your own eyes. Maybe not being too concerned with God's Word, not being that interested in the Word of God. Everyone is paying attention to something. For most people, that's their phones. Whatever's coming through on your phone, kind of the newest reel, uh, the word on the tweet, whatever it is, paying attention to that, maybe paying attention to sports, paying attention to current events. We give our attention to something. And the proverb says, give your attention above all to the word of God. His word lasts forever. His word has the ability to change you, has power to change you from the inside out. Invest yourself in the Word of God and expect to see fruit when you give yourself to the Word. Now, now Christians are those who have put their confidence in God through faith in Jesus Christ, submitted to God, and therefore we submit to His Word. We're governed by the Word of God. The entire church submitted to the Word of God. We don't understand that the church rules above the Bible, that teaching of the church is more important than the Bible. It's the other way around. 
The Bible rules the church. The Bible gives us direction and instructions. And therefore, as Christians, we submit gladly to the Word of God. But Christian, I wonder what threats exist in your life to forgetting the Word of God. Probably what I think is a very common threat amongst Christians is that you know the Word, you're familiar with it, but you're not keeping it. Maybe just becoming less sensitive to keeping the Word of God. Certainly, maybe you need to pay more attention to the Word. Maybe you need to think about this summer, how, how you can read more in the Bible or study more in the Bible or get together with another member of this church and read through the Bible to pay more attention. But I wonder how often just settling with being familiar with God's Word and, and not concerned increasingly with keeping the Word of God is a threat to forget the Word of God. You see, that, that word keep, it means to obey. It means to guard the commandments which have been entrusted to you, that you gladly and willingly obey the Word of the Lord. It's not enough to merely be familiar with the Word of God. If we truly remember God's Word, we'll keep it. You see, a theme throughout the book of Proverbs is that wisdom comes from obeying God's commands in your daily life. Wisdom and obedience go hand in hand. That obedience is a fruit of wisdom in your heart. And in this speech, the father wants the son to know that remembering God's word is a life that God blesses and a life that God rewards. Now, I want you to see an interesting structure in this proverb. This proverb rotates back and forth between exhortations and blessings. We see this very clearly. The call, the obligations of a believer, and the blessings that God gives to those who follow Him. The odd-numbered verses, starting in verse 1, 3, so on, they give exhortations, what God's people must do. The even-numbered verses list the blessings, what God will do for His people. We see that in verse 2 and 4 here in this beginning section. So let's first look at these exhortations in verse 1 and 3. These show how you remember God's Word. There in verse 1, how you remember God's Word, let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's the obligation of the believer. So we see here in verse 1 that in order to truly obey, your heart must keep God's commandments. God's law, in other words, is to be internalized. Our hearts matter when it comes to obedience. True obedience is not superficial. True obedience is not begrudgingly going along with what we're told to do, kind of like when your parents asked you to take out the trash at 10 o'clock at night, and that's not what you want to do, but you kind of grumble in your heart and you do it anyways because you know you must do it. That's not what obedience looks like, and that's not what obedience looks like when it comes to obeying our Father who is in heaven. Our hearts matter. The attitude of our hearts matter. Those who are believers, by God's grace, we will delight in obeying Him. It doesn't mean obedience is easy. Obedience certainly is costly. It's difficult, but it's something that we long for. That's why we pray prayers of confession regularly in this church, just confessing when we disobey that our desire is to follow God, that it, it would grieve us increasingly to disobey God and His Word, and our desire is to increasingly 
obey Him. We see here that God cares not only about our actions, but about our hearts. Now, the inward focus, it continues in the exhortation of verse 3. We see the words there, steadfast love and faithfulness. And throughout the Bible, those words are used to describe God, His covenant love towards His people. Here, when it's applied to our lives, it's a call to live faithfully, to live like God. He is faithful, and therefore we are to live faithfully in steadfast love. Now, in order to live faithfully, we're told, bind these commandments around your neck. But then also we're told, write them on the tablet of what? Your heart. That your heart matters when it comes to obedience. In other words, the only way to truly keep God's commands and walk faithfully is to be transformed inwardly. From your heart out comes obedience. So consider God's law. I just mentioned the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. They were written on tablets of what? Of stone. Tablets of stone given to Moses to pass on to the nation of Israel. But the Old Testament prophets, as we read in our scripture reading in Jeremiah 31, they looked forward to the day when God's law would be written on the hearts of His people. It's the glory of the new covenant. God promised, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the glory of God, by the power of His Spirit, putting His law within your heart, is giving you the strength to obey. His his word upon your heart, a desire to obey Him, a covenant relationship with Him marked by the Spirit of God being poured out in all of His people. See, in the new covenant, all of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are empowered to obey. The law of God written on your heart at the moment of conversion, the moment you first believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ, therefore empowering you to obey. You see, we have to be clear, you can't possibly walk in obedience to God and in wisdom apart from your heart being changed to keep God's commands. So the only way for you and I to receive wisdom from God is to receive His gift found in Jesus Christ alone. You see, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down to earth to rescue us from the path of sin. The book of Proverbs, it really gives a metaphor of life that there's two paths you can take. There's the path of wisdom and the path of folly. The problem is you and I were born on the path of folly, the path of sin, a heart that did not desire to know God or honor Him or obey Him, maybe perhaps paying lip service to Him and professing His name, but needing a heart that's changed to truly love Him and worship Him and honor Him in what we do. You see, God sent Jesus, the eternal Son of God, down to earth to rescue us from the path of sin and death and destruction. Jesus described it as a broad path. It's the path of the world, a path that many take and stay on. Jesus laid down his life, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of anyone who would turn and trust in him. You see, at the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection from the dead, him extending this new life to all who would repent and believe, your path has changed. Repentance happens, a turn taken from this path of sin onto this path of life, the path that Jesus has gone before us on, a path that's united to Him and therefore follows Him. The only way to be accepted by the God who created you 
is to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And for those who've been accepted by God through faith in Jesus, you obey. Those who are accepted, obey. We're not like all the other world religions that you obey in order to be accepted. We cannot earn our way to God. It's impossible. We can't possibly repay God the debt that we owe Him because of our sin. Christianity is a religion of grace. It's a gift. It's a gift that comes wholly of God and what He's done in Jesus Christ. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, you are accepted and therefore you obey. Now, all these odd-numbered verses, they give exhortations. The even-numbered verses list the blessings of obeying God, and they provide motivation to pursue wisdom. And I want you to hear this. There is no better life than a life with God. There is no better life than the Christian life. There is no better life than being forgiven of your sins and living now and forevermore in union with Jesus. And and Solomon, what he wants to do, he wants to give instruction, but also motivation. Now, perhaps in parenting, when you've given your child instruction, these days I'm telling my older children, you know, when to be home. All right, well, you need to be home by 11. Sometimes as a parent, maybe you get the response, why? Well, why? Such and such as parents will make them come home by 11. To which sometimes I respond, well, that's because we're better parents than their parents. Well, why? Such and such as parents don't tell them to come home by 11. Uh, maybe you found yourself saying, because I said so. I have found myself saying that. I don't think that's necessarily the best thing to say. And it's not what's being said here in the Bible. You see, here in Proverbs, the exhortations, they're followed by motivation for obedience. So Solomon doesn't say, do this because I said so. He says, do this, and he gives motivation. He creates this beautiful picture of wisdom and obedience that comes from following God. So let your heart keep my commandments. Why? Verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Bind these commands around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Why? Verse 4. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man meaning you're shaped by godly character, which pleases God and therefore catches the attention of people around you. Now, you may read this and you may think, well, hold on. Is this saying that if you obey God, you will live a long life, length of days and years of life added to you? Yes. It does say this. I just read it. So the proverb does indeed say that. And let's be clear. God has a posture of blessing. He's a good father. He blesses his children. It's in his very character to bless his children and to give good gifts to his children. Here the blessing is stated to show the wisdom of following God and the folly of turning away from him. In other words, there is great blessing that comes from knowing God's word and keeping it. Unmistakable truth. Great blessing that comes from knowing God's word and keeping it. But while this proverb presents a blessing, we must also remember how to read the Proverbs. They're not promises, they're Proverbs. So a better way to think about them, and we heard this before in Jonathan's sermon, they're they're more like probabilities. In other words, if you make wise choices, things probably will go well for you. And the inverse is true as well. Make foolish choices, and things probably will not go well for you. You see, the Proverbs show us what is often true but not 
always. So not promises. We, we know that we're called to Proverbs 4 to train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. That doesn't mean if you can do an awesome job at parenting, your kid's faith is going to be eternally secure. You can't save your kids. They personally have to put their faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a proverb, generally speaking, what is true. In other words, fearing God will most likely lead to a stable life. However, we must be clear, there are no guarantees. We live in a fallen world. And these blessings do not always work out immediately. They always work out, but they do not always work out immediately. A simple way I've heard this explained, these Proverbs are generally true now, but always ultimately true in the next life. Always true in the next life. There are times, sadly, where we will suffer now, and God's blessing and reward will come to us fully in the next life. I think about those who regularly pray for healing. And the reality is, God does heal. He does answer prayers for healing. We have prayed for members of this church, and God has healed them. I'm so thankful for that. It's a good thing we see in the book of James. Come to the elders. We'd love to pray for you. And God does answer those prayers. But also, unless Jesus returns first, you and I all will have a funeral day, which means eventually that prayer for healing will not get answered immediately. For Christians, the hope we have, it'll be answered fully in the next life. There's a day coming when we will receive a resurrection body that is perfect. All we will know is health. All we will know is goodness, sin, and disease, and sickness, and death forever gone away. The Proverbs are generally true now, but ultimately always true in the next life. Brother and sister, what that means is look to Christ. If anyone was worthy of honor and glory and blessing, it was Jesus Yet his suffering came before glory. The cross where he was despised and mistreated as a public criminal on display there, public execution. That cross and the tomb came before the glory of the resurrection. And so it is with those who follow him. Suffering comes before glory. While Christian, you will know blessings in this life. It is also true for the Christian that suffering comes before glory. Unless Christ returns first, every person will die one day, the godly and the ungodly alike. Christians are not exempt from suffering. Christians are not exempt from troubles and trials. But the confidence we have is that as we walk through those trials, Jesus is with us the whole way. And what you and I can do is pray and ask the Lord for help in those trials, in that trouble, ask for His help to remember His Word and to not forget it. Well, the second part we see of a heart of wisdom there is in verses 5 through 8, a heart that trusts in the Lord. What wisdom looks like, verses 5 through 8, a heart that trusts in the Lord. Now, the Proverbs are not merely about life hacks, how to have a successful life, ways to master life. Ultimately, they're about walking in wisdom and obedience to God. Therefore, we see obedience to God comes only from the heart. And because obedience comes from the heart, It starts with trusting in the Lord. That's what we read in verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Now what it means to trust is to place your confidence in something. 
I had to put your full weight on something. If you're driving over this overpass over Independence going home today, you're trusting the most recent inspection by the engineers of that bridge that it will hold your car and get you across to the other side. The full weight of your car and your life is there on that bridge. That's what trust looks like, to throw oneself down, face down, and complete reliance is the picture there. And everyone is putting their trust in something or someone. Christians, we put our trust in Jesus. But if you're not a Christian, you put your trust in something, maybe yourself, maybe someone else, maybe a relationship you're in. You may put your trust in your career and your own physical abilities. Everyone's putting their trust in something. And here in, the, in this proverb, the choice is presented to either trust yourself or to trust God. And here's how it's fleshed out. You'll have to notice the importance of the heart here. And what I think we see in this proverb, you should not trust your heart, rather trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's a big difference between those two ways of living. Trusting your heart, that's the message of this present world. Find the goodness inside of you. Do what makes you happy. If it seems good to you, that's good. Uh, There's no such thing as truth. Whatever's true for you, whatever you believe in your heart, as long as it uh, makes you a better person, you do you. That's the message of the world. Follow your heart. Trust your heart. But the Christian message is trust in the Lord with all your heart. You're going to either live one way or the other. To trust in the Lord with all your heart means that you don't trust your own resources. If you lean on your own understanding, you won't rely on God and His wisdom. If you think you are wise in your own eyes and sufficient and capable, you will seek to live off of your own resources. Being wise in your own eyes is what this message of following your heart looks like, living according to what you think is right, not concerned with what God has said in His Word. You know, for a number of years uh, before I was a pastor, I was serving in campus ministry, and, and basically I, I learned in conversation that I had something there that I still do today, is that when I'm talking to, to people who don't know Jesus, I just ask them questions. Hey, what do you think about this? It might be something like, hey, what do you think happens after you die? And I would have conversations with some really brilliant 18 and 19-year-olds, like really smart, smart kids, and they would tell me what they think would happen when you die. And it might go something like this, well, nothing happens. You just kind of go in the ground. That's the end of your life. And I learned to follow that up with, where are you getting that from? Who told you that? Because the Christian message, that when you die, your soul either goes to heaven or hell, that's not something we made up. Not an American message, not a Western message. It was something handed down from Jesus and the apostles. Our confidence, our faith is resting in God and His Word. And it is folly to think at 18 years old, or 30, or 50, or 70, or even 90, that your own wisdom is sufficient, that what you think happens after you die, what you think about life really matters in the grand scheme of life, that your worldly wisdom and what you think can even compare to the God of wisdom who created the universe by the power of His Word. That's the height of pride, something to be turned away from. Seeking God's wisdom means we must be humble. The message of the world is follow your heart, but there's an obvious problem with following your heart. It's doing right in your own eyes. It's the path of folly, 
But the obvious folly, it leads to destruction. In the Old Testament, the period of the judges, you can go back and read the book of Judges, everyone did what was right, how? In their own eyes. And it was chaos, utter chaos, the book of Judges. Going all the way back to the Garden and Eden with Adam and Eve, Satan offered Eve wisdom if only she would eat of the tree. Wisdom apart from God. Wisdom you could have on your own. And she took and ate and offered it to Adam, and he gladly took and ate as well. Is he following your heart is taking the broad path that leads to destruction. But there's another way. The path of wisdom where you trust in the Lord. It's a path of acknowledging God and fearing Him. So to trust in the Lord with all your heart means that in all your ways you acknowledge Him and you fear Him. Those two things, they go together in this proverb, acknowledging God and fearing Him. To acknowledge God is to know Him. To acknowledge God is to have fellowship with Him, a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. To acknowledge God means that in every responsibility that you have at home, at work, in your finances, in every relationship that you have, in every aspect of your life, you acknowledge God's presence and seek to honor Him. See, the difference between saying that you're a Christian and living the Christian life is that saying you're a Christian is maybe just acknowledging that idea. Well, I'm a Christian because I'm not Jewish. I'm not an atheist. Uh, I celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Easter. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Versus having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, meaning I acknowledge Jesus in my life. Jesus is important in my life. I long to honor Him and follow Him. I care what He said. I care to live my life in light of His Word, to live a life acknowledging God. Fearing God is also something we see in the life of a Christian, acknowledging God and fearing Him. And in our series so far, we've defined fearing the Lord certainly as this awe and reverence and respect of God, of who He is, but keeping in mind that a fear of God is about delighting in Him, not dreading Him, trusting in Him, not being terrified of Him. I've shared this before, but an illustration that kind of personified an understanding of fear. Being in, in awe of something beautiful and powerful was when I traveled to South Africa a number of years ago, and the best $35 I ever spent was a nighttime safari. And we went on this nighttime safari, and the way that you found animals was there was a spotlight on the side of the Jeep, and you just flash it, and then you'd see eyes looking at you. And for the first hour of our time there, it was raining, and we saw nothing. And I thought we'd probably get to the end of it, and we wouldn't see a single animal. Well, the rain stopped, and it ended up being a really good thing for us because the path was the dry and warm place. And so the animals started coming out. And pretty soon we saw all of the big five animals on the safari, including two male lions walking up right behind me. If you go to Africa on a safari, you want to see a lion. At least you think you do. Until it shows up. <laughs> Until it shows up. And you're like, oh, there's a lion. And, Wait a minute, there's a lion. And this Jeep is open. And I know the driver has a rifle, but I don't know how good of a shot he is. And there's six of us, and there's two lions, and they're right there. It really was a terrifying moment in the sense of like, hey, these creatures could destroy us. They're so powerful. But wow, look at how beautiful these creatures are. And we didn't want them to leave. We wanted them to stay within sight of us. And so that's why C.S. Lewis perhaps used the image of a lion, something that's beautiful in power, something that would leave you in awe. Well, friends, for Christians, that's what the Lord, our view of the Lord has been made to be like. 
We stand in awe of His power and reverence before the Creator of the universe. At the same time, we've been brought close into a relationship with Him where we love Him and desire to live in His presence. To fear God is to enjoy Him fully and forever. It's something that happens inside of us. And the blessing of a life that trusts in the Lord and fears the Lord, it's seen in verses 6 and 8. He will make straight your paths. Straight paths have less obstacles. As we acknowledge God in our lives more and more, He will remove obstacles in our life to following Him. A steady path that leads to life, not not a crooked path that leads to destruction. As we fear the Lord and turn away from evil, we see in verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bodies. That is the language of health there. Again, not a promise that you'll never get sick if you're a Christian, rather a general truth here. And here, health signifies a reversing of the curse of sin and death. In other words, trusting in yourself and in your own heart will not bring refreshment. It will bring anxiety. Trusting in yourself and your heart brings pain, pressure, stress. It brings all sorts of discontentment when you trust in yourself and find yourself gazing constantly in the mirror. The fear of the Lord, however, on the other hand, will lead you away from sin, and it brings refreshment to your soul. What do you depend on besides the Lord? Do you trust the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? If you're here this morning and your answer to that is, I don't know, if you've never put your faith in Christ, we would love to talk with you more about what that would look like to trust in the Lord today. Talk to any of our members who invited you or we'll be at the doors, the pastors will afterwards. We'd love to talk to you more. And for Christians, the question I would have for you is, does it increasingly grieve you when you find yourself not trusting the Lord? Ask the Lord for deeper trust in Him. He's pleased to answer that request. Ask Him that you would grow in fearing Him. Finally, the last part of a heart of wisdom, verses 9 through 12, what wisdom looks like, a heart that honors the Lord. A heart that honors the Lord. This last section, it gets practical. How to trust the Lord when things are going well and how to trust the Lord when things are hard. When life is hard... When we experience pain, it can be difficult to trust the Lord. We can be consumed with the trial or the hardship we're going through, and it can seem so difficult to focus on trusting the Lord. But also, when things are going well, and when you have a lot, it can be tempting to not trust the Lord and to rely on yourself, to rely on your strength, to rely on that big bank account, to rely on your abilities and accomplishments. It can be tempting to rely on yourself. Verse 9 shows us what it looks like to trust the Lord when things are going well. And verse 11 shows what it looks like to trust the Lord in the midst of pain. Look at verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Uh, the word here for honor is associated with the word weighty. To treat the Lord as, as weighty as opposed to treating Him lightly. Here the call is to honor the Lord and to respect Him with your wealth. Well, how do you honor the Lord with your wealth? Well, it says here, by giving your first and your best. That's what the first fruits are. The first fruits mentioned in verse 9 are the first and the best part of 
the crop. Don't give the leftovers. Give the first. Give the best. In the Old Testament, this involved giving the tithe, giving a tenth of what God had given you back to the Lord. And today, Christians are called to give generously to their local church. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that on the Lord's day, what you decided to set aside as a gift to bring that with you. That's why we give here on the Lord's day at this local church. Now, it takes trust in the Lord and His provision to give your wealth. You see, in God's economy and His financial advice, living off 90% is better than living off 100%. It doesn't make sense in the wisdom of the world, but living generously, whatever it is that God calls you to give your church, that means that, that you are somehow suffering the loss of money, suffering the loss of something you could do with that money, suffering the loss of how you could spend it on yourself, and you gladly do that because you trust in God's economy, that's the way He's called you to live, and that's the way that is best. That takes trust in the Lord. It requires acknowledging Him in your finances. It requires acknowledging, what do I have that I did not receive? You can pat yourself on the back for working really hard in school and climbing the corporate ladder, but who gave you the intellectual ability? Who gave you the job? Who gave you the physical strength to get out of bed and go to that job? Who's provided for you to be in this place and in this time and have those particular opportunities? What do we have that we have not received? And therefore, we can gladly give it back to the Lord. This is the way that comes with reward. Look at verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You will have an abundance. Again, not a promise, but a general truth. If you honor the Lord with your wealth, then God will give you more. You might think, hold up, wait a minute. It sounds a little bit like health, wealth, prosperity. Well, no, this is what the Bible says. But consider, again, giving is a matter of the heart. A heart to honor God does not give in order to get more. That's a self, that's the health, wealth, prosperity mind. I'm going to give in order to get. A heart that seeks to honor God gives in order to glorify, gives in order to glorify God. And good stewards of God's resources, generally speaking, will be trusted with more. And those who honor the Lord and get more will give more. This is the general path of wisdom. It's, it's how this church was started. You all heard about the, the gift. If you've been here since the early days, that we were, we were started off a very generous gift from someone who heard about what was going on here and trying to start this church, and he provided a check for $150,000 to start this church. And he was a man I did not know had that resources, and he actually didn't at that time. He'd come upon them, and he said, look, I grew up as a pastor's son, and I'm getting ready to have a job where I'm going to make a lot of money, and I don't need all this money, and I want to use this money for the spread of the gospel. He said, I want to use this money for church planting and for missions. And he gave us that money. And God's continued to bless him, and he continues to be generous and give to so many different efforts across the globe for the spread of the gospel. Now, we're to honor the Lord in good times, and we're to honor the Lord in hard times. Look at verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The same God who saves us will keep us. He disciplines us to keep us on the path of wisdom. And this word discipline here, it speaks of instruction through correction. When you fail to trust God, there will be consequences. 
often painful consequences. Sometimes we suffer because of our sin, because of folly in our lives. Certainly, God holds His children accountable for our sin. None of us will perfectly walk in wisdom, and therefore the comfort we see in verses 11 and 12 is that when God's children wander, He will guard us. He will discipline us. Now, having said that, not all discipline in your life is necessarily because of your sin. I mean, just read through the book of Job. You have to account for we live in a fallen world. God often uses the fallen effects of this world to mature us and to grow us in honoring Him more. So certainly parents discipline their children for disobedience, but you also discipline your body and put it through pain to strengthen your body physically, disciplining your body. So it is with discipline that comes from God and growing in wisdom. God often uses hardships in our life to grow us closer to Him to wean us away from reliance on this world around us and ourselves, to grow us to rely on Him more. And the instruction here is when God corrects you, when you experience hardship, don't despise His discipline, meaning don't reject it. Rather, accept it as a tool, an instrument of His love. You know, Christian, whatever discipline you may be experiencing, whether that's because of disobedience in your life, or because of the suffering we just generally and commonly know living in a fallen world. You can be confident in the midst of all of that. God loves you. God cares about you. He knows the burden and the pain better than anyone. It's wonderful to have friends that we can share our burdens with, who can pray for us, who can listen to us and and show care and compassion and kindness But brother and sister, what a friend we have in Jesus. He knows our pain, how it feels. He knows the burdens that we bear, the ways you can't even express and put into words hardship in your life. Jesus understands that intimately. He's never withdrawn from the pain and suffering of His people. Rather, He's the one who suffered and gone before us on the path of suffering and death, and therefore we can follow Him and trust Him that He cares for us, confident that He loves us. He will not leave us. He will not let us go to be swallowed by sin or to follow our own hearts. He will guard you and He will keep you, and therefore you can embrace the Lord's discipline as loving kindness to put you back on the path of wisdom. As we look at the Proverbs, the path of wisdom, a life of trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, we need to be reminded none of us have perfectly trusted in the Lord. It's the problem with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It doesn't account for none of us have perfectly trusted in the Lord. None of us have fully kept the obligations that God gives us. We all fall short. We regularly confess sin because far too often we find ourselves giving into temptation and turning away from the Lord. None of us have perfectly walked in wisdom. None of us have perfectly feared or honored the Lord. And as the story of the Bible goes on, we even see the wisest of kings, Solomon, did not keep God's commands and obligations, nor would his sons after him. Yet hundreds of years later, another king came from his line, a king who indeed was perfect in wisdom, a king perfect in righteousness, 
King Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came from the line of Solomon, the one who fully obeyed God. Jesus always walked in wisdom. Jesus always honored God in all that he did and said. Jesus, the only one perfectly sinless. Jesus, the only one to perfectly fulfill God's commands. Jesus, the only one to never stray from the path of wisdom. Indeed, wisdom found in him, a person, Jesus. And then he laid that life down. He died on the cross to pay for our sin, our folly, our failures. God raised him from the dead on the third day, extending new life and forgiveness of sins and righteousness and wisdom to anyone who would put their trust in him. Brothers and sisters, our hope is this. Our imperfect faith clings to a perfect Savior. And may we remember that now as we come to the Lord's table. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we confess we are those who are in need of wisdom. Father, we confess far too often we are wise in our own eyes, that we rely on our own resources, our own strength, our own ability. And Lord, we ask that you would change us this morning by the power of your Spirit, by the truth of your Word, that you would lead us to truly repent and to be transformed continually to trust you more. We pray as we come to the table this morning, you would remind us of the body of Jesus given for us, his blood shed for us, this perfect gift we have in Jesus. May we delight in him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.